0: All right, if you're not already there in your Bibles, head on over to Luke chapter 15. That's where we'll be camped out today, um, exploring together the passage that we just heard read a few moments ago. This parable, uh, in fact, is quite famous. Uh, It's an intriguing story told by Jesus, and it's really a story that if we uh, listen carefully, if we consider this parable thoughtfully, it can really affect the ways that we view God, the way that we view Christianity, and, and the way that we view the Christian life. Now, in my ESV translation, there's a heading there at Luke chapter 15, verse 11, and it says this. It says, the parable of the prodigal son, the son. And much of the focus, uh, historically speaking, in this story has been on the younger son, who, this younger son who leaves his father, he leaves his home, and he goes off to live life on his own terms. But the truth is, the story is about more than this younger son. It's a story, in fact, about two sons. It's a story about a younger brother and an older brother. And the more I study and explore this passage, the more that I see that Jesus is showing us here that the younger son was not the only one who was misguided in his approach to life. The more I study this passage, the more I see that these two brothers are really intended to show us uh, something about ourselves. They're intended to show us uh, two main ways, two wrong ways, in fact, that we go about uh, living our lives. And so while the focus is often on the one son, the younger son, the truth is we are supposed to compare and contrast these two brothers. In fact, if we don't compare and contrast these two brothers in the way that Jesus, uh, I I think, intends for us to, we're going to miss the true uh, message of this parable. The true message of this parable is a pretty radical message. But it's also a mistake to think that this story is just about two sons because it's also about a father. Jesus, he brings a father into this story who is utterly unique and unexpected, and in showing us this father in the way that he does, I think Jesus is giving his listeners, and, and he's giving us a glimpse, a glimpse of the grace that would be coming in the gospel, and a glimpse really into the very heart of our God. Now, I'd like to start in the first two verses of Luke chapter 15, The reason I'd like to start there is because we're told in those opening two verses of chapter 15 who the people were who were drawing near to Jesus in this moment to hear what he had to say. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so we have two, two groups of people here engaging Jesus. We have the, the Pharisees and the scribes. That's one group. We have the tax collectors and the sinners. That's another group. And this is, uh, this is his audience, so to speak. And I know these descriptions, these categories of people don't really register so well with us today. They're not ways that we would describe people in this time, in this place that we live in. But that does not mean that these types of people, these categories of people are not uh, relevant to us today especially when we consider who these people were and what they represented and what they believed. Because you see, these two groups, to this very day, they they represent two ways that we still go about living our lives. They represent two paths that people look to in their lives to find happiness and to find fulfillment. One way we can perhaps think about this first group, the Pharisees and the scribes, is to say that these people are the religious people of the day. This is the religious group. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes, these were leaders within the Jewish religion, and these guys really knew their Bibles. They, in fact, many of them would have had whole books of the Bible memorized. These guys did more Bible reading. They did more Bible memorizing and praying than you and I ever will. These guys really knew the rules, and these guys really followed the rules. That's what they were all about. And they saw themselves as good and righteous people, both before God and before men, based on those very things that they did. They were all about moral performance and obedience to the laws of God. And if we're going to refer to this first group as the religious group, then we'll refer to the second group, the tax collectors and sinners, as the irreligious group. You see, whereas the religious group was all about following the rules, this other group, the tax collectors and the sinners, Uh, This group would say, no thank you to that way of life. We'll decide for ourselves what rules we will follow, if any. After all, who are you to tell me what is right and what is wrong? This group was all about the freedom of self-discovery and how they lived their lives. They like to call their own shots and they like to set their own rules. But what's interesting is that something about Jesus was very attractive to this group of people, the tax collectors and the sinners, And something about this group of people was also very uh, special to Jesus because we're told in verse 2 that he welcomed them, he received them. Jesus, in fact, spent more time engaging in relationships with sinners and societal outcasts than perhaps any other group of people besides those who were were closest to him. And it is because of this, because of Jesus hanging out with the, the tax collectors, and the sinners that the religious group the pharisees and the scribes were grumbling in verse 2 you see it made no sense at all to these highly religious pharisees that jesus would welcome and and hang out with these outcasts and outsiders who were so clearly a mess in fact it greatly annoyed and angered the pharisees that jesus would do these sorts of things and that's why they're grumbling that's why they also made this accusation against Jesus in verse 2. They accuse Jesus in verse 2, essentially of of associating with the wrong type of people. They say he would receive and eat with sinners. And we can't miss this. This is actually very critical for us to understand here, that it it is in response to this accusation by the highly religious people of the day that Jesus tells this parable to these two groups of people who were drawing near to him. In fact, what Jesus says for the rest of chapter 15 in the book of Luke is his response to the Pharisees' accusation in verse 2. And so let's explore this parable that was told to these people in response to this accusation by the religious people of the day. Now before we dive in, if you may not be familiar with this parable, I want to kind of give something away here. I want to cue you into something on the front end that I'd ask you to kind of keep in mind as we proceed. Now, the father that you're going to hear about in this parable is meant to represent and reflect something about our God. And the two brothers you're going to hear about, they're going to represent something about you and I. They're going to kind of hold a mirror up to us in a sense, and they're going to show us two main ways and two wrong ways that we go about living our lives. The younger son, verse 11, he, he being Jesus, said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into a far country. So we have this family situation happening here. That much is clear, right? We have two sons and a father and the text It initially focuses on this younger son, and and we will too. But first, we need to understand here that this father and this family, they would have been pretty well off. You see, they had property, and they had an estate. And in this day, in a family that had assets and property like that, the older son would have been entitled to two-thirds of the father's estate, and the younger son would have been entitled to one-third of the father's estate. That's just how things worked back then but they didn't work that way until the father actually died. But this younger son, he did not seem interested in doing things the conventional way. This younger son actually had the audacity to look his father in the eye and to ask for his share of the inheritance now and and not later. Now, when the original listeners would have heard this, they would have been pretty shocked by this. Various commentators who know something about the history and the culture of that time, they say that to, to ask for the inheritance... In this way, while the father was still alive, in the way that this young man did, was no def- different than wishing his father dead, right to his face. What we cl- see pretty clearly here, in fact, is the younger son saying to the father, I want your stuff, I want your status, I want your wealth, but I don't, I don't really want you. And so this request was audacious. The listeners would have been shocked at this, but they they would have been even more shocked at the way the father responded to this request. The same commentator who knows something about the history and the culture of this time says that a, a traditional Middle Eastern father in a, in a patriarchal society like this, he would not have taken kindly at all to such a request. In fact, he would have been expected to drive this man out of the house with verbal, if not physical, and violent force. But this father, he doesn't do that. Instead, this father agrees to the son's request. He gives his son what he asked for. He gives him his share of the property. And it's interesting, if you look at verse 12 in your ESV translation, you'll see that the word property appears twice in that same verse 12 in your Bible. But they're actually two different words in the Greek. When the son first asked for his share of the property, the, the Greek word there is the literal word for property. But when it says the father divided his property between them, Later in that same verse, that's a different word. It's the Greek word bios, which means life. And so we're given the sense here that the father is not merely dividing his property. He's watching his family be divided. He's watching his standing and his reputation within the community be divided. He's dividing his life is what he's doing in order to grant the request of his youngest son. The father gives this younger son what he wants. He gives him his share of the estate, and he watches as his son turns his back on his family and on his home to go do things his own way. Continuing in verse 13, we're told what happened in this faraway country that the younger son traveled to with all his newfound wealth. It says in verse 13, there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. And so that didn't seem to go so well, did it? The younger son, he leaves home. He, he does things his own way. He travels. He spins. He lives life on his own terms. There seems to be little planning. There seems to be little self-discipline. There does seem to be plenty of self-indulgence and and self-absorption. The word prodigal means to spend extravagantly, to to spend until you have nothing left. And that's why this parable is often called the parable of the prodigal son because that's exactly what what this younger son did. He finds himself with no friends, no food, no money, no home, and really nowhere to turn. But we also see in the midst of this mess that he's made out of his life, something is happening inside of him. He's beginning to reconsider his approach. He's beginning to to reevaluate his life. Sometimes it takes a little to get a person to that point. Sometimes it takes a lot. And with this guy, we see it took, took a lot. But we also see that through it all, something was happening. Verse 17 says, When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so this younger son came to himself in verse 17. It says he came to his senses. He began to to see things differently when his own plan for his life came completely undone, really by his, by his own doing, we see that he began, he began to long for his father, and he began to long for his home. We even see the younger son practicing the speech that he's going to give to his father in verses 18 and 19, because he knows he's disrespected his father. He knows he's hurt his father deeply. He's sure things can never be quite the same as they were, but he's coming up with a restitution plan, isn't he? By, by which he might somehow, some way, begin to earn his way back into some sort of restored standing with his father, even if only as a hired hand, as a hired servant. He longs to come home, not just to the, the place he called home, but to the one and only relationship that was his true home before he turned and, and left, left home. Have you ever been at that point with God? wondering if you've gone too far, wondering if it was even possible to turn back toward home, to turn back toward your heavenly father. If you might be at that point today, I want to encourage you to continue listening in to what Jesus is going to say here. And let's not lose sight of the audience here either. What were the listeners hearing and experiencing as Jesus told this part of the story to them? the tax collectors and the sinners, they were surely dialed in at this point because they knew a thing or two about uh, doing things their own way. They knew a thing or two about reckless and, and irresponsible living. And so they could relate in many ways to this younger brother. And they were wondering what it was going to take for this younger son to get back into right standing with the family after all he had done to disrespect and dishonor his father. But at this point, things are not looking so good for the younger son. Things are not looking good for the, the tax collectors and the sinners either because at this point, it's not, it's not at all clear how this father is going to respond to this younger son's return. Now, the other group, the Pharisees and the scribes, they might have been feeling pretty good at this stage of the story. They might have been thinking uh, that the, the, the way back to the father for this younger son, if there was one at all, it would need to be long and demanding. Surely the punishment for this younger son's action would need to be swift and and severe. After all, restitution was needed. And so after all this, the younger son shows up to his father's estate with nowhere else to turn, just hoping to give his speech, just hoping for a little mercy, just hoping to explain his repayment plan. And look at what happens in verses 20 to 24 as Jesus introduces us more fully to this father in this parable. Look at the reaction of this father to his son. Verse 20 says, While he, he being the younger son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate so that's, uh, that's interesting right that's pretty crazy right when, when the son returned home after all this time and after all that he had done we might have expected verbal blows at least perhaps physical blows as well this father, he had been disgraced and dishonored by his son. This son had rejected his father to his face, and everybody in this community knew about it. But look at this father's reaction. We don't see any yelling. We don't see violence. We don't see confrontation. We see compassion. We see that not only does this father allow his son back, not only does he uh, welcome him back, he shows he shows emotional abandon as he celebrates his son's return and as he lavishes him with affection. He sees his son far off in the distance, and he doesn't sit back and wait. He, he takes off running towards his son. He, he hugs him, and he kisses his son. And the truth is, this would have been highly unorthodox behavior for any male patriarch of that day under any circumstances, much less circumstances like we're talking about right here. But that's what this father does. He runs towards his child, and he lavishes him with his affection. This father does not say, how dare you show up here? He doesn't say, you're going you're to pay for this. He doesn't say, you need to, to clean yourself up and work your way back into my favor and my good standing. He says, you're coming back into the family by, by my authority and by, by my plan his father. He defies all expectation. He defies all societal norms. He shocks everyone with how he responded to uh, his son's initial request, and now he shocks everyone again with how he celebrates his son's return, even after all that had happened. That kind of grace, that, that kind of scandalous grace, it can be pretty disorienting. It can be pretty unsettling when you're not expecting it. And the Pharisees listening in surely would have found all of this very unsettling at this point. You see, the Pharisees would have been appalled that this younger son got away with all that he did with virtually no punishment. They would have been appalled at the lack of fairness, the lack of justice after what this younger son did. They were surely thinking, what in the world kind of father is this? But the other group listening in, the tax collectors and sinners, they would have been kind of disoriented by this grace for a different reason perhaps they would have found hope that that maybe this type of father, maybe this type of God would even welcome them back home too, even after all that had gone down in their lives with them. Jesus is showing us here an amazing glimpse of the grace and the hope and the heart of our heavenly father toward the younger brother types of this world. But as I mentioned earlier, there's more to the story than just the younger son. The parable does not end there. Jesus wants to introduce us to the older son, the older brother, in in verses 25 to 32. And as he does, things take a very interesting turn in this story. You see, now it's the older son's turn to dishonor and disrespect his father in his own unique way. In fact, many commentators say that the real thrust of this entire parable is more, or as much about the older son as it is about the younger son. and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? So this older brother, he had been out tending to the father's estate, as he often did, and as he was coming back to the house, uh, we're told that he heard music and and he heard dancing. Not only did he hear the music, he... He heard the dancing. I'm not sure how you hear dancing, but if that's the case, this must have been quite a party. We know that also because in that time, in that place, you see, meat was a real delicacy. It was a very expensive delicacy, and one of the most expensive and greatest delicacies was when someone would kill the fattened calf, and so this would have been a pretty big deal. This could very well have been the biggest party that this father ever threw. Commentators say it's possible the whole village would have been there because this just wasn't the sort of thing that most families would do as a private affair because of the expense that was involved. So we have the ring, the robe, the fattened calf. We have the music and the dancing. This was an extravagant and expensive celebration that was going down here. And this is what the older son returned to after his time away, hard at work on the father's estate, And when he got wind of what had happened and and what was happening, he could not believe what he was hearing and seeing. His younger brother was alive and safe, and his father was overwhelmed with joy at the return of his own son. And what we see from this older brother more than anything else was anger and bitterness. He won't even call his father father. In verse 29, he doesn't say father. He says, look. He says, look you, I've served you these many years and you're throwing him a party? What we see is this older brother publicly insulting his father by refusing to to be a part of this celebration for his brother. What the older brother is really saying to the father is, is, how dare you use our wealth like this? I've obeyed you. I've followed all your rules. I've served you these many years. I should have some say in this. In other words, he's saying, I have certain rights over your things, and I deserve better than this. These are some pretty bold statements to the father by this older brother, some pretty bold statements to this father who wanted only to celebrate the safe return of his beloved son. But just as the father responded unexpectedly with the younger son, he, he responds unexpectedly to this older son as well, too. He responds, in fact, with incredible tenderness and, and grace towards this older brother, too, despite his older brother's attitude and his anger. The father says in verse 31, "'Son, you are always with me, and all that, I have, all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found.'" This father, he didn't let the older brother stay outside, outside of the party and pout, even though to many this would have been a pretty good option in this moment. Instead, the father entreated him. He pleaded with him to come into the party. And just as the father went out uh, to the younger son uh, before he even made it back home, he also went out to the older brother as well, didn't he? He went out, he stepped out of the celebration he had to move toward the older son to tenderly encourage him and invite him into the celebration. Most fathers would have soundly rebuked this older son for what he had just done, especially in that day. But this father, he responds with grace. He says, my son, my child, I want you to join the celebration. Get in here. What are you doing? All that I have is yours. Let's celebrate your brother's return together. This is your brother we're talking about. But the older brother, he thought he deserved better. He had certain expectations of what he had coming to him from the father based on all the things that he had done for the father. And so he was upset. He refused to come into the biggest party ever to be thrown by his father and by his family. And so what does Jesus say next? What does he do next? What happens with this family situation as this parable concludes? Well, the truth is, and this is perhaps the most unexpected twist of all, but it's precisely at this point that Jesus ends the story. Jesus leaves us hanging here with no real resolution to this part of the story. And so we don't know what happened with this older brother. As far as we know, he never stepped into the party. He never joined the party. As far as we know, this brother who followed all the father's rules never actually stepped into the father's celebration. Now, the listeners would have been stunned by this. In fact, this younger son, the reckless and rebellious son who squandered the father's wealth and divided the father's life is saved and celebrated by this father while the son of seemingly high moral character and religious standards is is apparently lost. And so the listeners must have been saying, what in the world is going on here? And we should be asking the very same thing. Jesus is really shifting the paradigm here Through the telling of this parable, he intends to fracture the worldview of his listeners, both then and now. You see, he's redefining for us a number of things. As we step back a bit and think about what we've been hearing, a really fascinating thing Jesus is doing here for us is he's redefining for us what it means to be lost. As we compare and contrast these two brothers, we find that Jesus is showing us that that sin and rebellion can take on different forms, some of which are easier to spot than others. The rebellion of the younger son was pretty blatant, right? Reckless and irresponsible living. He goes from from parties and prostitutes to to poverty and pigs. This guy lost control of his life. He crashed and burned in dramatic fashion. Now that's sin, right? That's, That's hard to miss. But we need to see here as well that the older son was lost as well. The sin of the older son was certainly more subtle, but it's one we need to pay particular attention to because we need to remember we're never told whether this older son actually stepped into the Father's Feast. Jesus ended the story pretty abruptly, in fact, and I think he did so quite intentionally because he has something to say to the the Pharisees and to the older brother types in that crowd then and in every crowd today. The truth is some people rebel by being bad, while while other people rebel by being good. Younger brother types rebel with things like reckless and irresponsible living, but older brother types rebel too. They just do it with things like rules and and religion. The younger son was alienated from the father because of his wrongdoing, but the older son was alienated from his father through his right doing, and more specifically, through his pride and his sense of entitlement that he felt about his right doing. Can you see that in him? The younger brother tried to control the father's things by taking his share of the father's things, leaving the country, and calling his own shots. The elder brother was no different than the younger in wanting the father's things and not the father. He was just going about it differently. He tried to control the father's things by staying at home and keeping all the rules. And after all his hard work and obedience, he had certain expectations. He felt that the father owed him certain things. And you hear that coming out clearly when things did not go his way. He was abrasive to the father. He wouldn't even acknowledge his father as his father. In verse 29, he says, look, look you, look at these many years that I've served you. Which means literally, look at all these years I've slaved for you. That's how he viewed his service to his father and to his family. He obeyed and served his father not because he cared about his father or wanted to make him happy, but because he cared about what he could get from his father. Both sons thought they had figured out the right ways to live, both thought they had found the right way to reach happiness. One of them did it by being bad, and one of them did it by being good. But Jesus says, You're both wrong. He says, You're both lost. Friends, Jesus seems to be saying here quite clearly that you and I can be just as lost following the rules as we can in breaking them. And what this means for us is that our sin includes not only doing bad things, but it also includes doing good things for the wrong reasons and thinking that God owes us a nice and comfortable life because of the rules that we follow and the things that we do. That's what the older brother was doing, right? And that's what the Pharisees were doing too all along, according to Jesus, We all, in fact, do it at some level, and that's the slippery part of this whole thing. So we need to be repenting regularly, not only of the bad things we do in our lives. We also need to be repenting of the selfish and self-serving reasons why we do many of the good things that we do in our lives. But first, we need to be able to see these things in ourselves, and it's not always easy. Often those who look at the older brother in this parable and say, well, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like he really did that much wrong. He, he really had a right to be angry there. And there are people that, that say that. Those people, in fact, though, are most likely a lot like the older brother. And So we need to be watchful. We need to be aware. We need to look honestly at ourselves and at our attitudes in order to begin to see these toxic tendency, tendencies within Uh, ourselves, and to begin to uproot them. Because if you think you're better or more deserving than other people because of your beliefs or because of your behavior, you will inevitably feel superior to them. You will inevitably be condescending and even hostile towards them. There will be an undercurrent of anger in your life when things do not go your own way. You will be anxious and insecure you'll be overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, and yet at the very same time, you will be fierce in your judgment and your criticism of others. And this can be really uh, insidious because it becomes all too easy when we begin thinking in these sorts of ways to, to justify hate and oppression and prejudice against others, all under the guise of morality and truth, When we consider the attitudes and the actions of the older brother in this parable, it's in fact not hard to see why the younger brother may have wanted out in the first place. And along those same lines, there are many today who want nothing to do with the Christian church because they think that the Christian church is just a bunch of self righteous older brother types. And through this parable, Jesus is saying that in many cases, unfortunately, they're right. And so let's be mindful about these things. Let's be careful in working against these self-righteous and self-serving tendencies that are in each one of us. So Jesus, he redefines here for us what it means to be lost, but he also redefines for us what it means to be found. Now, over the years, many readers have come to the conclusion that, that restoring the younger son into this family involves no cost, no payment. No atonement, they might say. They might point out that the younger son wanted to make restitution, but the father, he would not allow it. And so his acceptance back into the family was simply free. And this, some say, shows that forgiveness and love should always be free and unconditional. But what I'd like to suggest is that while it is true that the younger son's restoration into the family was, it was free to him, it was not free to everyone involved. It did cost something, and it did cost someone. Someone had to pay. Remember the ring, the robe, the party, and who knows what went down from there? It was not free by any means. Now remember, the younger son had already taken his share of the father's estate. He squandered it all, and so presumably all that remained of the estate was supposed to go exclusively to the older brother. And so the one who was really taking the hit here was... Was the older brother, and that's probably a big part of the reason why he was so upset. You see, it was only at the older brother's expense that the younger brother could be brought back into the family and have his status and his standing fully restored. The older brother was paying for this, and he was not pleased one bit, and so he refused to come into the party. Now remember, we started with verses 1 and 2 earlier and talked about the audience who was drawing near to Jesus, and then we, then we jumped ahead to verse 11 and started talking about the parable of the two sons. But there was something really interesting and something uh, really relevant to us in those intervening verses. In verses 3 to 10, there are two other short parables that come before the one we've been talking about today. And so we have three parables given by Jesus in very quick succession here, all three all three being in direct response to that accusation by the Pharisees in verse 2. And these three parables, they reveal a a very interesting pattern. The first parable, verses 3 to 7, that's the parable of the lost sheep. A man is tending a hundred sheep and he loses one. He goes out seeking and searching for the lost sheep. And when he finds it, he calls all his friends and neighbors to come and and to celebrate and to rejoice with them because the The one who was lost had been found. The second parable, verses 8 to 10, is the parable of the lost coin. A woman has ten silver coins, but she loses one, and so she searches diligently until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls all her friends and neighbors to come and to celebrate and to rejoice with her because she found the one coin that was lost. And then we get to the third parable, the parable of the two sons, the two sons. Uh, A father has two sons, but he loses one. He loses one to reckless and irresponsible living in a far-off country. The similarities in these three parables is hard to miss, right? Something is lost in each, the sheep, the coin, and the son. And in each parable, the one who loses something finds it, and when they find it, there is much rejoicing and celebration. But there's one very striking difference that can be seen in this third parable as we compare it to the first two. You see, in the third parable, nobody goes out searching for the younger son. Nobody goes out looking for the, the wayward younger son. We get to this third parable, and by that time, after, after reading about the lost sheep and after reading about the lost coin, we kind of expect somebody to be going out in search of the lost younger brother too, right? But no one does. No one goes. And so Jesus, very interestingly so, seems to be inviting the question of, of why. Why? And who? Why didn't anyone go out searching for this lost son? And who should have done that? Now, some commentators suggest that they say that the older brother is the one who should have done that. He should have stepped up and looked out for his younger brother in that sort of way, but he didn't. We saw that clearly. He's, we saw he was flawed. He was broken. He didn't do that at all because he had his own set of issues. He He didn't do that because he was more interested in serving himself than he was in serving his father or his family. So by putting a flawed elder brother in this parable in the way that he did, some say Jesus is inviting the reader to imagine and to yearn for a true and better older brother who would have done the right thing, who would have gone out searching and seeking his lost brother. And who would have done so even at great expense and at great loss to himself? That's the kind of older brother that's missing from this story. But that's not the kind of older brother that's missing from from our story, from the Christian story. Because that's exactly what we have in Jesus, who, who indeed on several occasions refers to you and I as his brothers and as his sisters in God's family. But our elder brother didn't just travel across the country to find us, he traveled across the cosmos to seek us out and to find us. He stepped into human history on a search and rescue mission to, to find us, to, to bring us home, to restore us into the family, and to invite us into the greatest party ever to be thrown. And our access into that party, into the Father's celebration, while it is, it is free to us by grace through faith, Someone had to pay, and someone did pay. Our perfect older brother paid it in full, willingly on the cross, so that you and I, lost as we were, could be found. Friends, whatever your form of rebellion today, the Father is inviting you into the party. If you're not a follower of Jesus, won't you turn to Him today for the first time? It does not matter who you are, or where you're from, or what you've done or when you did it this father he's watching he's he's waiting and if you're already a follower of Jesus today whether you're a younger brother type or an older brother type won't you turn to him again today let's turn to him again today as we as we open the table as we share in the lord's supper together over the next few moments And as we do, let's remember and reflect on this perfect elder brother that we have. You know, the true prodigal of this story is not the younger son. The true prodigal of this story is Jesus, who would go on to to spend extravagantly. He, He would spend until he had nothing left to spend. On the cross, Jesus gave everything that he had. He divided his life. He divided his family so that you and I could come home. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word and your goodness and your grace in our lives. Thank you for the ways that you patiently pursue us in spite of us. Thank you for watching and waiting and celebrating our return home. Thank you that you love us, not because of anything that we've done or could ever do, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Thank you that no matter our form of rebellion, you have made a way for us. God, would you affect our hearts and our minds through these truths that we've heard spoken in Jesus' name. Amen.